So, we don't have a family camp, but I thought of just making the ministry over the entire weekend um, a theme for us all, just so to include Friday night's Bible study, incorporate it into tomorrow, tomorrow's activities and the fellowship, and then obviously to conclude it on Sunday. Now, there's going to be a lot of fun activities, games, you know, hanging out with like-minded people, um, sharing delicious meals throughout. You know, we kind of kicked it off with a great meal. Tomorrow is a whole day of playing and eating. And then on Sunday is the ultimate dessert day. Uh, there's no dessert tomorrow. You're going to come for to, for dessert. You're not going to find anything. The dessert is on Sunday. Bake some pancakes and also just enjoy the time together. But that's not what it's about. It's not just about being together outside of, you know, the formalities and being together outside of, you know, corporate worship. It's also an opportunity for us to to look at other themes, um, especially being a church that, you know, that preaches book by book or that preaches theme orientated. <clears throat> I've prayerfully decided to theme our weekend with three words. You can change. You can change. That sounds very like uh, moral, you know, humanistic, maybe even legalistic, like how do you change? Or how can I change, right? And that's a question I want you to have uh, going throughout this whole weekend is how can I change? <clears throat> so tonight will be session one, and we're recording it just for everyone else to kind of catch up as well. And then tomorrow, out in the open there, between the birds and the crickets and the blue sky and all these things, I'll record session two, which is very brief, by the way. Session two will be a lot more brief than tonight, and it will be a lot more brief than on Sunday. But on Sunday, we'll look at session three. So tonight's theme is sin and the heart. Sin and the heart. So the question is, how can we change, right? Well, we need to know what we're changing from. Who's changing us? What needs to change? I bet you could all agree that every Christian knows what it's like to struggle with ongoing patterns of sin, isn't it? Every Christian knows the struggle um, of having a, a continuous battle against sin. Even after we trust in Jesus for salvation, don't we continue to struggle to kind of live in the old ways? That we're tempted to kind of think like we used to think. We're tempted to do what we used to do. We're tempted to go where we used to go. And so isn't this something that's extremely discouraging? To struggle, right? We don't like struggling. Listen, who of you likes to struggle in general? Just period. Who of you likes to struggle with your cards? Who, who wants to struggle with a lock that you know doesn't want to unlock or that doesn't want to lock? Or is it just me? I'm the only one that doesn't like struggle. Hey? If, if, if something is supposed to work in a certain way, then I expect it to work in a certain way. Sadly, we, we live in a country where you know, we, we expect certain things to work away, but it doesn't. Like our municipalities and home affairs and all these things. They just don't work like they should. 
So it's a constant struggle with these things, but so it is with the Christian life. There's a constant struggle with sin and the old way of life, the old way of thinking. But there's a key word. That's kind of what change is all about. And that key word is hope. Hope. Hope is a beautiful thing. I hope you agree. Hope is something that can sustain a discouraged Christian who is struggling with their sinful habits. Hope. <clears throat> you see, at the end of the road, it's hope that sustains us, that strengthens us. If you want change in a Christian walk, change won't come by a list of rules. Change is not going to come in a system. You know, you might listen to someone that says, seven ways to change. Right? Or the recipe for change. Change doesn't come with techniques. Our only hope is Jesus. Because Jesus truly changes. That's where we find change. We're not changed by systems or rules. But we are changed by a Redeemer. Because what does a Redeemer do? What does it mean to redeem? Who can help me? Sorry? Pay in full, right. Or to buy out. Same idea. Redeem is to purchase someone's debt on their behalf. To write it off. Now we need a Redeemer. We need redemption. And Christ is the only Redeemer. So if we put Jesus at the heart of our efforts, at the heart of our change, it reminds us that no matter how we struggle with sin, we have a hope, an enduring hope, because Jesus changes us. He doesn't change, He changes us. Amen? So coming to session one, we need to know that sinful behavior always starts where? In the heart. That's what James says, right? Where does where does where is sin born? In the heart. When we are tempted by desire, and we act out that desire, James says it gives birth to sin, leads to death. <clears throat> so, just coming to this first session, <clears throat> you have to understand sinful behavior always starts in the heart. You don't just decide to walk out the door and kick a dog just because. But there's a reason why you want to kick that dog. It's been doing something. You've been meditating on how you can maybe shush this dog or prevent it from jumping on your car or wetting everything. So tonight we want to look at the, the what, the why, the how, and the when of change. You guys get it? What, why, how, and when of change. Alright? So starting with the first point, I want to ask the question, what would you like to change? What would you like to change? Mark chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, is where we'll start tonight. 
we'll jump to various passages. That's this is topical study. We're going to be up and about. Mark 7, please turn with me there so that you can see these words. So Jesus is talking, and this is what he has to say. From verse 20 it says, And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, is, eat, is it eating bacon that defiles me? Or is it the wickedness that comes out of my heart that defiles me? It's what comes out. Yeah. Jesus said it's not what goes in a person's mouth, but what comes out of it. Because that comes from the heart. I hope you're with me. So according to scripture, the source of all human behavior and emotions is the heart. The source of all human behavior and emotion is from the heart. So where should our focus be when it comes to change? The heart. Cheryl, you got it. The heart. Now the heart refers to our thinking. It refers to our desires. Right? You with me? The heart refers to our thinking and it refers to our desires. Therefore, understanding that temptation and sin begin in our hearts will enable us to truly understand how times, situations, and circumstances contribute to our ongoing battle with temptation and sin. Because these things happen. I have this, in counseling, I have this heart diagram. And surrounding this heart diagram is three circles. And all these three circles point to different areas of life. And it, it kind of points out how behavior, certain behavior starts. And usually there's arrows pointing to this whole diagram. Usually it's circumstances. Something happens, then we respond. We respond either desiring something, we respond by either wanting something, or we respond by Rejecting altogether. And then it leads to a new behavioral pattern. Either we start to think sinfully, which leads to behaving sinfully, and it leads to worshipping that very thing. That's how idolatry starts, right? That's just a ravager. I thought I'd mention that. Because we want to be quick to throw our hands in the air and say, it's the times we live in. It's the situations I'm in. Yeah? People want to be quick to say, no, but it's my it's my parent house. It's it's how I grew up. I didn't have two dads, so I mean two parents. Hopefully you don't have two dads. <laughs> Unless it's a father in law and a dad, you know, maybe a stepdad. But you could say, no, but that's how I grew up. Or I grew up in a non Christian home, like an unbelieving house. I grew up with pagan parents. Or but I didn't get the equivalent education as everyone else. I went to a non-school fee-paying school. You went to a private school. 
So it's circumstances. It's opportunities. No, my dear friends, we cannot point to circumstances or the times or situations and say, but that's the problem. That's what has to change, not me. Of course, it would be great. Listen, I pray to live in, a, in, in our land where everything works as it is intended to work. But the Lord has also placed this government over us, either to humble us, to teach us, but we can't say, no, but it's the government. Look how awful the government is. So I can just respond to it as I please. No, no. Romans 13 is what? God says the government is put there for? As a sword, right? As, as discipline. As a, a governing authority to discipline. You say, well, what about a corrupt government? Well, coming back to our theme. The struggles and temptations we have. That is what often triggers sin. I'll say it again. You want to know what triggers sin? Our struggles and temptations. When we're faced with something that opposes us or that either that draws us in, we are going to respond. We're either going to respond by glorifying God or we are going to respond in sin. Yes? Okay. So, the question, what do you want to change? Can we just get that away? It's a bit distracting. Yes. Your heart. Alright? What would you like to change? Don't give me the Christian answer. Be honest. What would you like to change? I want examples, yes. Relationships, okay. What else? What would you like to change? Yes, again. Okay, that's incredible. A deeper understanding of scripture. Patience. Patience. Where your happiness comes from. So you all have a longing. You all have a desire, right? For something to change. For something to be different. So some of these changes are good. Some of them aren't. But the problem with all of them is that they are not ambitious enough. They're not ambitious enough. God offers us something much more. Genesis 1.27 It says this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So this passage tells us that we are made to be God's image on the earth. To know him. To share in his rule over the world. And to reflect his glory. You see what I mean by our wanting change is not ambitious enough. Because if the intention of our creation is to know God, is to share in His rule and to reflect His glory, then desiring patience is limited. Do you understand where I'm going with this? All these things are limited in that sense. 
back in Genesis 1. After each day of creation, what did God say? It was good, right? So we all have the understanding. When we read Genesis 1, after each day of creation, God says it is good. Then on day 6, God's verdict on a world that now included humanity was what? Very good. Okay? God looked at everything that He had made and He said it was very good. But God's work wasn't finished. You see, it wasn't finished in the sense that His glory needed to be reflected in this new world, in this new creation. That's what Isaiah says. What was the intention for the creation of man? To reflect His glory. So, the work isn't done until His glory is being revealed, is being reflected. Now, having this in mind, we often make excuses for our actions by saying, I'm only human. Have you ever done that? But I'm only human, I'm sorry, you know. My mom, it's so cute. She wouldn't say, I'm, you know, my bad. Like, sorry, my bad. She would say, I'm bad. And I would always say, yeah, you are. Like, no one is good, no one is right. But, you know, I'm bad. And that's it, we're bad. It's like that Michael Jackson theme, you know. I'm bad, I'm bad. We are, and we, you know. But that's not the intention. The intention is to reflect God's glory. There's nothing only human about us, right? We're truly human, yes, but truly human means to reflect the glory of God. If that's the intention of man's creation, then the excuse can't be, I'm only human. Because I'm only human is to reflect God's glory. Pretty weighty, isn't it? Glad to share this with you because I was just so excited to be indulging in this as well. The problem is this. The image is broken. We're created in the image of God, right? But something happened to that image. It's distorted. It's like when you get out the shower and the first thing you want to do is you want to look in the mirror. But what do you see? Right, it's just covered. You can't see a thing. You can't even see like an outline. That's what I mean by the image is distorted. You're supposed to be able to see a clear reflection, but we can't because of sin. When Adam and Eve fell into sin, that's what happened to the image. It is distorted. And ever since the fall, we are still created in God's image. Amen? It hasn't changed. But we cannot see clearly until that image is restored. And Christ restores this broken image. But until that point, the problem is this. We reject God. We reject God. Because we can't see the image clearly. So we reject God. We try to live lives our way, we, and we end up making a mess of things. And the problem is we aren't being God's image on the earth. We're not displaying His glory. We have failed to be the image of God we were made to be. We can't be the people we want to be, let alone the people we ought to be. 
That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, I tried, but the things that I shouldn't do, I do. Therefore, enter to the stage. Welcome, you know, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus. Jesus enters the stage. And 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, He is the image of God. He is the image of God. So when I talk about restoring this image, Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean He's the first saved, as certain popular famous teach, preachers would say He's the first you know, person saved. No, no, no. He's the way of salvation. He wasn't. He was never reborn, or, you know, spiritually made alive. Christ never died spiritually. Hebrews one three says this: that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. You want to know what the Father looks like? Look to Christ. Behold Christ. And so Christ makes God known in the world. Jesus comes. He is God in human form. He shows us what it means to be the image of God. He shows us what it means to reflect God's glory. <clears throat> Listen, when we read throughout the New Testament, doesn't it tell us that we need to be like God or sometimes it says we should be like Christ? Why interchange? Why interchange? Why say be like God and later say be like Christ and then be like God, be like Christ? Sorry? Christ is God. The image, right? And so Jesus comes to remake us in his image. Jesus restores this image. Scripture says Jesus is the second Adam. What was the problem with the first Adam? He sinned. What's the grace in the second Adam? He died. He died. You see, being made in God's image after the fall means we're made in a broken image. But through Christ, we are united into the image, the intended image. Jesus takes our brokenness, Jesus takes our hatred, and Jesus takes our curse on himself. That's why Paul says that he who knew no sin, what? Became sin. That's the beauty. So Jesus takes the penalty of our sin and in its place it's not like Jesus takes something and doesn't give. He takes the penalty of sin and in the place of that penalty He gives a new life and a new love. Are you with me? And so the distorted image is changed to a restored image through Christ. So when I ask, what would you like to change? It's our image. It's our image. Not this one. I'm sure we would love to change our physical image. 
but it is our reflection of the glory of God. So secondly, why would you like to change? For this, I want to read Romans 5. Why would you like to change? Hey? Anyone, why would you like to change? To be at peace, that's great. Right. Let's look at Romans 5. Verse 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So why do you want to be more like Jesus? Why do you want to keep a lid on your temper? Or why do you want to overcome your lust? Why do you want to maybe stop living in a fantasy world, you know? Why do you want to feel less depressed, less bitter, less frustrated? Why do you want to be a better parent? Why do you want to be a better husband? Better wife? Why do you want to be a better employee or employer? I'll give you three examples. Some people might want to change in order to prove their righteousness or worthiness to God. We would say, well, that's a good reason, you know. Want to change to prove that I am worth God. Some would want to prove themselves to others. Prove that they're capable of something, right? And still others would want to prove something to themselves. So the question is, what's wrong with wanting to change so that we can prove ourselves to God or prove ourselves to other people or prove to ourselves? Yeah? It's self-righteousness. It's self-righteousness. But why do we want it? Mm. We do it because, you know, self-righteousness. Here's the thing. It doesn't work. When we want to prove something to others or ourselves or to God, it doesn't work. Let me explain. We might fool other people for a while. We might even fool ourselves. But here's the thing. We can never change enough to impress God. To look at this, look at what I've achieved, look at what I've done, and think like, your God, you can be impressed with me, right? We can't do that. So hey, that shouldn't burden you. You should be like, whew, okay, there's nothing I can do to impress God. So 
I mean, it should take that burden away. It should be relieved. Amen? I cannot impress God, no matter what I do. Here's the reason. Trying to impress God or others or ourselves puts us at the center. That's the problem. It puts us at the center. Who needs to be at the center? Christ. Because if I'm at the center, it's all about me looking good. It's done for my glory. And that's the definition of sin. Sin is living for my glory instead of God's. I'll say it again. Sin is living for my glory instead of for God's glory. And often that means rejecting God as Lord or wanting to be our own Lord. It can also mean that we involve rejecting God as Savior because we want to be our own Savior. We want to make things right. Here's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees did good works. The Pharisees repented of bad works. Why did Jesus tell them that they're whitewashed tombs? Hey? Because the gospel tells us that repentance includes repenting of good works done for the wrong reasons. You'll do good, but at what cost? For what measure? We're doing good because we want to impress God, right? That's sin. Because it's not to enjoy God. It's not to glorify God. It's because I'm at the center, so I need to feel better about myself. I need to feel as if when God looks at me, you know, he sees that I've done something that's worthwhile. Friends, if you, if you didn't know this, you know now, but that's sin. Only those who have turned from sin and turned to Christ can seek change for the right reasons. To repent and say, Lord, nothing I have done could ever bring me into your presence. That's what Isaiah says, isn't it? What does he say? Our good works are what? Filthy works. Therefore, our motive for change should be to enjoy the freedom from sin and delight in God. That's the motive. To delight in God. To enjoy God. John Piper's, one of his fa uh, famous quotes is, is, is what? To enjoy God and to glorify Him. Enjoy God. Have you ever heard people say that? Like, do you enjoy God? Or do you live in this moral mindset that, and I mean, you might bring your theology into question. I know that God's not far off. He's with me. But then you still think like, yeah, you know, I need to just always be doing things that would impress God. But Scripture teaches us that we can enjoy God and have fellowship with God, call upon the name of God. Scripture tells us the reverse is true as well, that God knows 
us by name. That he knows every detail about us, including the amount of hair we have, even as it falls out. Right? That's intimate. That's intimate. So we can intimately enjoy God, knowing him, not trying to impress him, but delighting in who he is. So, becoming like Jesus is something that gives, that God gives to us. Becoming like Jesus is something that God gives us. We can't become more like Jesus. Scripture says we are conformed. We are conformed. That means it's being done to us. And we're changing through the work of the Holy Spirit. You Listen, you can get up and have a list of words that you're not supposed to say and a list of deeds you have to be or do throughout the day. But the, the issue is it becomes legalism. And it's not devotion. Devotion is to, in the moment, repent of those selfish good works. To repent of our desire and lust and pursuit of sin. Now when we repent, are we kneeling before a God who is far off or before the God who is with us? As scripture says, who is a sympathetic high priest. It's the latter. He's the sympathetic high priest. He's, he's calling us. He, as According to Paul's writings to the Philippians, says what? He wants us to make our requests known. That's intimacy. That's how we can enjoy God. So I ask again, why would you want to change? Pray for you. It is to enjoy God, to delight in God. Right? Next, number three. And for this, I want us to go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2.20. This is a very important question. How are you going to change? How are you going to change? Yes. By abiding. By abiding in Christ. Anyone else? <laughs> By obedience, okay. Alright, Colossians 2 verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, such as do not handle, do not touch, uh, do not taste, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This verse simply tells us that when we try and change, 
we approach a self-made, man-made system of change, we're promoting what? Selfishness. Our Christian lives begin when we received the Holy Spirit, right? When we believe in Christ crucified. In fact, we become Christians by faith in Jesus, and therefore we stay Christians by faith in Jesus, and we grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. Right? That element doesn't go away. We always believe by faith. The Spirit, therefore, gives us the desire to do what's right and opposes our old sinful desires to do or to not do what is wrong. So essentially we could say our job is to follow the Holy Spirit. Right? What would you, Galatians 5. Those two lists. The list of immoralities and that of the, the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit because you can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Like, without God, it is what? It's impossible, number one. Number two, if you do that without Christ, it's good works you need to repent from. Sin. There's no desire to glorify God. Therefore, Christians must approach change with the following understanding. Number one, we must repent of our unrighteousness and admit our inability to produce lasting change. If it was about us, we, we can't. Like, listen, New Year's resolutions. It is the 22nd of October. Who of you are still at your New Year's resolution? You, right? You've not broken it once. You have. All right. So technically, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's an inability. We, we cannot do it of ourselves. And don't feel like, oh, but that's wrong, because now we can't do it. We can't do it, period. Who can do it? God. God in and through us. What does Scripture say? Is anything impossible with God? No. All things, Jesus said, is possible through who? Through God. So, if we want to be aware of our change and conformity into Christ then we need to repent of our sin. We need to admit, like, we can't change by ourselves. We need the Lord's help. I'm not saying you need to be passive and say, Lord, take away this desire. No, there's, there's a list in Scripture that, that is to put off our desire for sin. Number two, we must remember that change is God's work. If you want to change, you need to remember that change is God's work. He is the only one who can change hearts. In Ezekiel, very famous portion of scripture, says that it's God who removes the heart of stone and gives a heart of flesh. It's only God who can bring true change. Number three, if we want to approach 
change, we need to understand or accept rather. We need to accept the discipline of the Father. We need to know that we live in union with Christ and we ought to walk in the Holy Spirit. Say it again. We must accept the discipline of the Father, live in union with Christ, and walk in the Holy Spirit. It's not always easy, fun, or a delight, because in our pursuit for sin, and after being caught out in our sin, do we want the Father's discipline? I mean, we don't even want the consequences, that's why we try and hide it. Number four, if we want to know what change truly is, then this is it. We must know that change is unavoidable for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Change is unavoidable for those who have put their faith in Christ. Listen, look at your life. Has the way you speak changed? Has your attitudes changed? Has your desires changed? changed. If you look back and you say, oh no, nothing's changed, then I'm going to ask if you're really a Christian. Because in Christ you cannot remain the same. Change is unavoidable. Your desire to want to speak like Him, to want to walk like Him and act like Him will grow more and more and more and more and more. It should grow more and more. 1 John 3 verse 9 puts it like this. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Doesn't mean you'll be sinless in this life. Amen. Okay? It's simply teaching us that we can't live in this repetition of continual sin. Change is inevitable. It's going to happen. Because Jesus sets us free from the penalty of sin. And Jesus also sets us free from the power of sin. We're almost done. So, how can you change? Here's how you can change. In Christ, we are free to live for God. Even though we continue to struggle with sin, we are free to live for God. Here's the thing. We're like a former prisoner who still wakes up at prison hours. Are you with me? We're changed, right? We've come out of the system, but now we kind of like still want to wake up at, at prison hours. This is why Paul says, in Romans 6 verse 12, you can just make the scripture references. Romans 6 verse 12, Paul says, um, Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Let not sin reign in your body. We have the power to say no to temptation. We also have a new motivation to battle with sin. We're no longer under law, but under grace. Yes? And grace enables us to live for God. Romans 6.14 says, 
for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You want to know what wins our hearts? Grace wins our hearts. Sinclair Ferguson says, Only when we turn away from looking at our sin to look at the face of God, to find His pardoning grace, do we begin to repent. Say it again. Only when we turn away from looking at our sin to looking at the face of God, do we find His pardoning grace, do we begin to repent. While we're indulging in sin, while we're pursuing sin, we will have no desire to repent. We'll have no desire to change. But the moment we look at God and we see His grace in forgiving us, what happens? It's there where we repent. It's there where we confess our sins. It's there where we desire true change. So the final question is this. When do you struggle? Look at the what, the why, and the how. The last one is this. When do you struggle? When do you struggle with sin? When, when would you say temptation comes? Because we, in, in the beginning we said it's usually circumstances, situations, something triggers, right? But what would that, just give us an example. It doesn't have to be true of you. Okay. For me it's when I'm tired. When I'm tired, man, it's, it can be anything. But it, it just feels like I am just so powerless because I'm not aware of, of exactly that. So Monday is when I'm tired. Oh, man. It's a long day. Yes, when you don't feel well. So you do struggle, right? Everyone in this room would say I struggle. As a parent, you might exercise discipline when it wasn't necessary. You're like, ah, oh, feel bad. Was that too... You know, was I too strict? Was that right? Was that loving? Um, as a believer, you go about your, your whole day and tonight when you get home, and you get in bed and you realize, oh, I haven't even prayed today. And I haven't even thanked the Lord for the day. And then you're in bed and you want to, you start praying and then you're gone. Tomorrow morning you wake up and you say, oh, I didn't even finish praying last night in bed. Like, ah, oh, woe is me. I feel so bad. Then you feel bad and then you don't even pray. So you struggle, right? That was an amen. Thanks, Layla. She, she doesn't know about it yet, but she struggles. Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. So we do struggle. Here's a verse that comforts me. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord says, I have surely seen, I have heard, I know their sufferings. I have come down. You know what's the grace in our suffering? The Lord gave this message to His suffering people in Egypt. And you know how they were suffering, right? They were treated like slaves, oppressed. I mean, animals were better off than what they were. And this was God's message. I have seen, I have heard, I know your sufferings. I have come down. 
We often think that no one cares or no one knows of my struggle. But God knows and God cares for your struggle. You say, but even my desire or temptation for lust, would he care about that? Because that is so gross. He cares about that. Say, but if he only cares about these real bad sins, does he care about my constant temptation to lie? Is that something small? He cares about all our struggles, right? So, in what kind of situations do you act in a wrong way or experience negative feelings? What makes you depressed or angry or bitter or irritated or frustrated? Or when you are prone to temptation, what sets you off? Is there a pattern? I ask this because we can be aware and we need to be aware, especially if we want to see change, if we want to witness change. Because listen, life is tough, amen? It's already hard. <laughs> and you think about, oh, my life is a believer, right? It should glorify God. All of us face challenges or challenging situations. Yours might be difficult family relationships. It might be sickness. It might be financial worries. It might be people who rile you up at a dead-end job. It may be singleness. It might be a loveless marriage. It might be peer pressure that pushes you towards sin. It might be stress of having too much to do. It's because, yes, we are a messed up people. And we live in a messed up world. But understanding the times and situations and circumstances that lead to temptation and sin in our lives is important. We need to know what is it that's poking from the outside that makes me act in a way that doesn't glorify God. We need to know what that is so that we can either avoid it or change the environment or so forth. However, there are other truths you need to know in your struggle against sin, okay? And this is where I wrap it up. This is our application. There are other truths that you need to know in your struggle against sin. Number one, Jesus is truly God and truly human. Are you with me? Jesus is truly God and truly human. This means... Because Jesus took on human nature, he was able to experience temptation. And his experience with temptation enables him to relate with us and sympathize with us. What does the writer of Hebrews say? The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way. Every way yet remained sinless. Listen, when we relate to someone's struggle, it's like we're sympathetic, but to a point. Like after a point, we feel like, no man, you should just get over it. I've been there, I've done that. You know, I got over it. Like you need to get over it too. Is that sympathetic? No. That's not. That's not very loving, is it? Jesus sympathizes because he did experience temptation. The thing is, he never gave in to temptation. 
see the line is this when we give in to temptation it, it feels like there's a sense of relief like this pressure to to not indulge is suddenly gone because I've indulged it gives us a false assurance it gives us a false security because oops I've done it so it's already happened now I just pray for grace Jesus overcame temptation and the grace is he knows our struggle in temptation number two the situations and circumstances we face in life only reveal the sinfulness of our hearts the situations and circumstances we face in life only reveal the sinfulness of our hearts because we respond right and how do we respond <laughs> yeah we're not forced to sin by the things that happen to us but the things that happen to us can reveal the sinfulness of our hearts someone drives into you in your brand new car what's the response is that God honoring it's not it's not so there's a twofold problem in the heart as I sum it up problem is this what we think or trust and what we desire or worship and sin happens when we don't trust God you know the problem in our heart is if we don't trust God sin happens sin happens when we believe lies about God instead of God's word and when we worship idols instead of worshiping God so we struggle when we trust our heart and not God but I'm gonna follow my heart people love to say that. I'm gonna follow my heart but what does your heart say Your heart's always going to want. It wants. Jeremiah 79 says, The heart is deceitful above all and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand the heart? You say, I know my heart. If you do that's great because then you know like what you are willing to do to get what you want amen but verse 10 in Jeremiah 17 continues and it says I the Lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds if we are trusting in Christ and his work in our hearts and we obey as Galatians 5 tells us to walk in the Holy Spirit right to practice long suffering to endure to be patient to be loving to be kind to be tender-hearted 
What's happening? Your delight is in the Lord. Not in your heart. Not in the aspirations you have here on the earth while you live. Because listen, we have we have good desires, but the intention of that desire might not be good. See, the Lord can come tomorrow. And you might say, I want the Lord to come. But I first want to get married. And then you get married and you say, but I first want kids. And your kids go up and say, but I first want grandkids. Is that truly delighting in the Lord? See, to delight in the Lord is to, yes, I want to get married. I want to experience marriage. I, I'd love to, to have kids and raise kids in the fear of the Lord and see them raise kids. But man, wouldn't it be better if the Lord comes before us? That's to delight in That's to seek Him above all things. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in Your name we ask that You would just give us an awareness that change is possible. And that this change happens because of your grace and your love and your pursuit of us. So let us walk in your goodness and in your grace. Let us long for um, your love to be revealed to us daily, continually. That we would also just be caring for those around us. Caring more for your glory than our deepest desires, whether they seem pure or are as dark as the night. I ask that you would be our true desire, our true delight. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.